Welcome back to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today, we'll be talking work from home stocks. What to make of earnings season, because it's a lot of weird stuff going on. And later, Danny's going to rip off the tape on payment for order flow. And later, we'll be going off the tape in an interview with Chris Bevilacqua. And I can say that name all day long. And listen, one of the reasons I'm mentioning this work from home, a lot of cross currents. And I actually did a sprint triathlon in May of 2012. I mentioned that because the swim portion of the triathlon was in the Navasink River, Dan Nathan. And I got to tell you something, there were all kinds of cross currents going on and it scared the bleep out of me. And now we have some cross currents going on in the market and it is scaring me. And you want to talk about these work from home stocks. A lot of things taken taken out to the woodshed hasn't manifested itself into the broader market yet, Dan Nathan. Yeah, interesting. The broader market, they would say the S&P 500 is still up 11% year to date. It's not far from its all-time highs that it was making last year. But the outperformance relative to the NASDAQ is something that we have not seen in a very long time. The NASDAQ is up a little less than 5%. But you just mentioned these work from home stocks. In the throes of this pandemic, You know, we had this very short bear market. It was 35% peak to trough. It was a little more than six weeks. This was last spring. And there were some winners that just emerged and then they just kept on going and then what have we seen though in the last few months or so once we got the vaccine news once investors started pricing in all this stimulus the thought was is that At some point, these valuations are going to be really hard to justify. And I just think it's interesting as I'm Thursday afternoon, I'm looking at my screens here. I'm seeing some devastation in some of these names. Fastly, which is an infrastructure cloud play, it was very much in demand. Their services last year, as we saw this transformation from offices and and workers from all over and, and, and students from all over working from home, this stock is down 27% today alone. It's well off of, I don't know, 60 some percent from its highs made a few months ago. Yesterday, we saw Peloton. That was very stock specific. It was down 15%. But again, this stock is down maybe 50% from its all-time highs made a few months ago. Now, here's the thing. Some of these situations are where these stocks can't grow in these valuations. And if there's a piece of news that is going to cause investors to kind of shoot first and ask questions later, it turns into a very difficult situation. And obviously, the poster child for this situation I'm talking about is obviously Zoom. This stock traded just below $600 back in the fall, and now it's trading below $300 here. This company hasn't even reported earnings yet. So when you're seeing this sort of price action in stocks like this that were really important sentiment leaders, I think you have to take note. Yeah. And listen, before I bring in the great Danny Moses, or Demo, as I say, off camera, off microphone, just let me say one thing about this fastly. This is not a small company. Even with the move you just talked about, Dan Nathan, it's still a $5 billion market cap company. And it's off from $136.50, the all-time high in October. It is a staggering move. And quickly about Zoom, Demo, The fact that now Satya Nadella's compensation, by the way, the CEO of Microsoft, is now linked to how well Teams does, well, that puts the crosshairs directly on Zoom. So you got to watch these things. But I would submit, and maybe Danny has some views, that this is actually probably a good thing for the broader market. These high flyers are taking a breather, more than just taking a breather. They're getting taken out to the woodshed. Maybe we find some support in stocks that actually make sense. I agree. I think we've gone from work from home stocks, people are still trading from home or on their phone 
And to Dan's point, kind of the underbelly, we talk about this all the time. You just look at the S&P, things don't feel that bad. But when momentum dies and you really no reason, no fundamental reason to buy these stocks, which is what we're seeing, we've seen a rotation here. So XLE, which is the energy up 38% year to date, XHB up 35%, which are the builders and building related companies, XLI, the industrials up 17% year to date. Those are outperforming. You're seeing the rotation. But what you're also seeing, I think, is some of these meme slash momentum stocks for an excuse to sell. They're rolling into these tokens and these crypto. And I'm not even going to go after Doge this week. I don't even know $60 billion ahead of an SNL skit or wherever this thing's value. But just think about the values of these in aggregate. I think the entire crypto market is now north of $2.5 trillion and, and rising if you just want to keep throwing new tokens in. And I know we don't want to be vulgar on the show and that's not the point but seriously there's come rocket which is a new Pardon me say that i mean what was that i don't even i don't even like my mother listens i'm gonna talk but if you buy the token they're called cummies and they're actually used for sex oriented sites and so forth come i don't even on, know what the thing on. is i've never been to any of those sites obviously yeah. in my life but in all of my, my point is this thing is growing to multi-billion all of a sudden market cap so these things are literally being created out of thin air that's not going to end well. You, I would much rather own a Zoom, even though it's down 50%, and enter that with a downside, maybe minimal or maybe it's a little bit more, than own a token that may not exist a week from now. So again, we always point to the similarities in 2000, and it just feels more and more like that. So Danny, are you suggesting, though, that as we see money come out of some of these pandemic winners, and I'm going to talk about another group in a second, that the money has flowed into crypto, all these altcoins, if you will, because it's also really interesting that we're talking about some of the mega caps really stalling, and we're going to get to that a little bit. You know, Bitcoin made a a high of about 64.5. It's trading about 57,000. That's up about 100% year over year, but it's really stalled out below its lows. And you're seeing Ethereum or ETH has just surged ahead. It's gone from 2,500 to 3,500 in a week or so. Is that kind of reflective of what we're seeing going on in the market also? So I would just say, as it relates to Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think we've seen earnings reports come out and there's a lot more validation for uses of Ethereum on the chain, obviously. Bitcoin is kind of the proxy, obviously, for digital currency, but Ethereum is really the application that's taking off. And I think it's gaining a lot more credibility every day that goes by. So I think we're seeing Bitcoin sell off a little bit at the expense of Ethereum. Yeah. And I would just mention this, you know, so we were talking just before about these pandemic winners. There's another category of stocks that I think investors really have to keep their eye on because we were in this kind of SPAC frenzy in 2020, and at least in the back half of the year. And then finally, we we're starting to see these companies that you thought their IPOs had been shelled and you know what they are, right? It was the Airbnb, it was DoorDash, and they came to market and they came to market at big valuations. And I have a whole list of these recent IPOs, at least over the last six months. And most Most of these stocks are down 30 to 50%, Airbnb, DoorDash, Palantir, Snowflake. So they're not just consumer delivery or you know th- those sorts of names. There's also some very big enterprise companies. We've seen serious, serious market cap come off of these things. And I don't think that there are lows low enough for these things at, at this point. When you're starting to see liquidation and high valuation names, that can go for a while. It actually points to how actually strong money flows still are into the market. The money's not leaving the market. We just talked about a rotation. It's finding another home. It's just finding a home in the less sexy stuff that's out there. So I don't know what happens when the less sexy stuff becomes too expensive. Then I don't know where the money's going to go. Well, it's like the great Led Zeppelin song, which, by the way, they ripped off. If it keeps on raining, Danny, the levee's going to break. And when the levee breaks, brother, have no place. You have no place to stay. And you know by the what? way, guy, by yes, the way, Danny. Yes, Danny. what movie was that the theme song for? 
Oh, give it to me. It's one of your movies, no doubt. It's probably some drug-induced flick. What is it? It's The Big Short. I wouldn't call that You're necessarily kidding. a drug. Is no, that's that the right? opening. When the levee breaks, absolutely. <laughs> I think they paid a fortune to get it. No, it's probably worth every penny. And I, right. <laughs> maybe, you know, the next time I see The Big Short will be the first time, but it's got nothing to what? do with you. No, I'm just telling you. But you know what's interesting? And we talk about this all the time. Great news, bad price action. It speaks to a lot of things that you guys are talking about. Just let me mention this real quick. First quarter earnings effectively over. The magnitudes of the beats by companies are of a standard deviation we haven't seen literally since 1998 or thereabouts. Difference is this time, the price action on the back of a lot of these stocks has been lousy in a word. What two companies am I mentioning? Well, Amazon first and foremost. The Amazon quarter was ridiculous, ridiculous good. Operating margins through the roof, revenue, everything was great about that quarter. The price action has been miserable. And as the great Carter Worth says, to the penny, we have a double top going back to the September high that Dan Nathan talks about all the time. Apple is the other one. Again, everybody fawns over Apple. And it was a tremendous quarter on literally every metric. The only thing, if you want to get nitpicky about the Apple quarter, consumer services was 19% of overall revenue, which is still a great number. I think a lot of people are hoping for that to be in the low 20s. But that's nitpicky. Why do I bring that up? Because Apple, as opposed to Amazon, didn't test its recent all-time high. As a matter of fact, I think it topped out around 138, the all-time high being, I believe, on January 26th of 145.09. And you've seen the subsequent sell-off. And I'm not trying to get cataclysmic here, but this is eerily reminiscent, Danny Moses, to something that you witnessed early on in your illustrious career. Yeah, that's, again, I know we harp on this and people are probably starting to get annoyed. But for those people that are listening that are over the age of, let's say, 40, they certainly remember. And if you were in the markets then, you remember exactly how this felt. Starting to go down on great numbers. Stocks blow numbers away. Stocks trade down. Where is the incremental buyer for this stuff, obviously? Guy, you make a point. Those two big names, $4 trillion in market cap, Apple and Amazon, they put up great quarters. The stocks can't rally. So the question is, Danny just used the term incremental buyer. Who is that incremental buyer? You have this underperformance of technology in general versus the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is benefiting from the rotation of all those groups that Danny just mentioned into energy, into materials, into builders, into financials, that sort of thing. But sooner or later, that's not going to work again. There's going to be a reason, there's going to need to be a reason why you're going to break Amazon and Apple out of these nine-month ranges. And so I guess the point, when you look at those numbers, you say they can't get any better than that, right? So investors are going to start looking at the sort of results that we saw in Q1, and they already gave good Q2 guidance. The back half of the year, you are going to be contending with decelerating growth, decelerating metrics on almost everything. And that's really the problem. And then the the other issue is that investors seem to be, they don't mind paying 23 times for the S&P 500, but they seem to be a little apprehensive to pay 20 times sales for a food delivery company or some sort of SaaS cloud company. And and that is what Guy would call a sort of witch's brew. And And we were talking about the crypto though, and we're talking about how that ecosystem has gone in the last year from under a trillion to over two trillion. And Danny, you mentioned this point when we were talking the other day, money came from somewhere, right? It came from somewhere. It didn't come from the sidelines. It didn't come from people's IRAs and stuff like that. It came from people looking to speculate. So they've come out of SPACs, 
They've come out of IPOs. They've come out of some other high valuation sort of names, or they've come out of names that Apple and Amazon have been great for 10 years. And now they're going into Uniswap and Dogecoin and whatever that disgusting coin that you mentioned. I'm not even going to repeat it. I guess my <laughs> point is, it's like, you know, it doesn't every day that I look up and I see the NASDAQ underperforming and I see banks and energy and home builders up, that doesn't make me more for, uh, more bullish about the market. You know, like that's just my takeaway. And it does remind me of 2000. And Danny, listen, I didn't mean to insult you. I didn't see the movie. What was it called again? The Big Short. I didn't. I didn't. I, I missed that one. But you know what? I'm going to do after the show. I'm going to get one of those Lyft. I'm going to get the application and get a Lyft car and go to the Blockbuster and rent it. Why do I mention Lyft? Because if you think it's just Amazon and Apple, take a look at what Lyft has done this week, this past week. It's fascinating. I thought they reported a great quarter, and the stock went from about fifty-eight and a half up to sixty-one. In the after hours, and then you wake up the next day and it's got a 50-50 handle. Oh, by the way, headed below that now. Another really good, in my opinion, great earnings release, miserable price action, Danny. So again, it's not just the two big names, there are other names under the surface as well. Retail volumes are down. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more in the ripping off the tape, but retail volumes are down. So to Dan's point, gamification continues. It's now found its way into these coins. And there's a list, I think there's 6,000 coins at this point and they're ranked and you can go on Coinbase and look at them or all these other metrics. It's, it's just insane to me. It's not going to end well. I hope the Saturday Night Live skits are fantastic. No, they're <laughs> not going to be fantastic. You know what else was not fantastic? The fact that Janet Yellen, who I also have an issue with, everybody loves Janet Yellen because she's this really smart, nice old lady with the gray hair. She's well-spoken. I don't know what she was thinking this past week, but she put her Fed official hat back on and started talking about interest rates. And I got to tell you, as Treasury Secretary, that's not in her purview. And she walked it back. But, you know, it's funny what she said. She said, me more than anyone respects the autonomy of the Federal Reserve. Then why'd you bring it up in the first place? And she said something I think got the market a little bit scared. And you know what, Danny? It's all out there. Bullard's talking about it. You're talking about it. I'm talking about it. Dan, Nathan doesn't care because he loves all these guys and gals. But you know what? I don't love all these guys and gals. And they're starting to show their hand. And they don't have pocket aces. They have like 7-2 unsuited. She went right past the tapering, which... Powell keeps talking about, well, the first step will be to taper these bond purchases and this QE that's been going on. She went right past that and started talking about there might be a need to raise rates if inflation stays in a little bit longer, a little bit higher than people would have thought. Let me just say this. Challenger jobs report. April, fewest job cuts in 21 years. What year was that? That was 2000. Uh Very, very similar. There's 16.2 million people collecting unemployment checks still at this point. Why? Because the COVID payment bonuses, if you want to call them, don't run out until September 5th. Wage inflation is moving higher. We have seen that and we keep seeing that. We're going to get a major CPI number next week. And I feel like just to add on to why these growth stocks are selling off and why we're seeing this rotation, I think the benefit of the doubt is now on the other side of inflation. I think you're going to have to start seeing things real slow down in inflation before the market starts to believe the Fed is not going to raise rates or maybe has lost control of this. So Yellen obviously tried to do some damage control after that. But the numbers are out there. I mean, food prices, energy prices, housing prices are all moving to certain levels. And one other thing for those kids playing at home out there that I watch, and I want to mention this, is look at tips. What are tips? Tips are the difference between expected inflation and 10-year yields. So you can do it on the 10-year, you can do it on the 5-year, you can do it anywhere. But look at the chart on these things. And Dan, you like technicals. Look at TIP and SCHP. 
those kind of the two largest kind of tip proxies that are out there, those things are about to explode higher. I mean, so you tell me, I mean, I think that's a much better investment than owning bonds, let's say. I'd rather own tips here. By the way, before Dan Nathan gets in, speaking of tips, we gave you a great one last week. I'm just saying that now. I'm just saying it now. We'll talk about it later. But we had a really good tip on, yeah, did. Uh, on the tape. Anyway, Dan, please jump in. You say I'm a fan of these guys. You're talking about these guys and gals. You're a fan of the Fed, the same way you're a fan of the, the widespread panic and what the other band that you love so much, the Nirvana, and the, what, what's the other one that you Pearl really Jam, like? The Airborne Pearl Toxic Jam, event. Pearl Jam, yeah, all I those things, you, the Airborne no, 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 Toxic no, no. Event. So we, we've had this discussion on many occasions on this podcast this year. I am not a fan of the policy in which just continues to further the income inequality gap. And I look at what they're doing right now and the fact that they're continuing the pace of QE and the sort of assets they're buying, that makes no sense. What did we hear this week? The Bank of Canada, the BOE, the Bank of England, they're all going to be kind of taking their foot off the pedal on QE. But our Fed, to your point, I think the whole world looks to our central bankers to kind of get their cues in a way. Rarely do we see other parts of the world lead the way on this sort of stuff. So I keep hearing this from market participants, Jackson Hole, Jackson Hole, Jackson Hole. And I know that sounds like a broken record because it seems like ever since the global financial crisis, when what is it, the St. Louis Fed, they have their meeting at Jackson Hole. And it's usually been a point where Bernanke rolled out some big policy changes or that sort of thing. At this point, they are going to be forced to do something very soon. And they probably start with a taper, right? And then at some point, they're going to have to look to normalize interest rates. So am I a fan of that? No. Could their messaging be a bit better? Yeah, but I don't really see a whole heck of a lot of risk. The stock market's at the all-time high. If they have to take a 10% drop in the S&P 500 to signal that rates are going to get normalized, so be it. As we see here today, we have not seen the job support yet for Friday morning. When people are listening to this, they probably will have seen it. The expectations are a million jobs. ADP came out, private payroll, 742,000 earlier this week, right? So the expectations are already high. My point is, at one point, those numbers, even if they're lower or meet expectations, they have a shock value to them. And I don't believe, I think way before August, we're going to have a massive movement one way or another. Either things have calmed down enough and the market realizes that it's overvalued on a PE basis, or things keep heating up and the market's overpriced on an inflation-adjusted basis. The genie is out of the bottle. The horse has left the barn. You say what you want. And I mentioned, you know, the other night on the CNBC's Fast Money, I know Danny's making faces right now because I mentioned the show, but I mentioned Hamlet and Queen Gertrude. Thou protest too much, methinks. And that's what's going on with all these Fed officials. And they're all talking now, and they're all trying to get out of the corner, in my opinion, that Jerome Powell backed himself into in March of this year, when he effectively said, regardless of the data, we're not doing anything until 2023. And you know what? We did a segment last week that we called Rip Off the Tape. And Danny ripped off the tape and people enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's funny. I'm a participant in On the Tape, but I'm also a viewer. I I also embrace the demo. Rip off the tape, brother. By the way, Happy 11th anniversary. What happened 11 years ago today? I had my 55th birthday party (laughs) in New York City. It was the flash crash. It was the flash crash. So ironic that Gary Ginsler and others are testifying again today for the third time about GameStop. But really what they're going after, they're talking about gamification, equity market structure, short selling, social media, market plumbing, system-wide risk, and the payment for order flow. Now, 
let's keep in mind that payment for order flow is banned in the UK, it's banned in Australia, it's banned in Canada. So there has been some people adopting this, realizing that it's probably not great for the markets because it sets up disincentives. Let's move ahead to Robinhood in this payment for order flow. And by the way, there isn't going to be a full report issued until this summer. So I'm not expecting anything to come out of this hearing. Let me say this, except that it's in Gensler's crosshairs and he's looking to do something about it at some point in the future. Robinhood put out their first quarter numbers for payment for order flow because it has to be publicly reported according to these filings. $331 million in payment for order flow in Q1. People believe it's at least 50, probably up to 70% of their entire revenues. Of that amount, $198 million is in options, and $126 million is in what? Non-S&P 500 stocks, and only $7 million of the payment for order flow is in S&P 500 stocks. Why do I mention that? To sound like Guy Adami, why do I mention that? Because the spreads are normally wider in these non-S&P 500 stocks. Who bought the most order flow from Robinhood? Citadel, 52 million of these stocks, and Virtu at 40 million. Let's fast forward. Virtu had a great quarter. And let me just say this. I have nothing against Virtu. They're not doing anything illegal. I think it's a great business model for the times, but they're certainly at risk if payment for order flow goes away. Why do I say that? Virtu's EBITDA margin in the quarter was 77.6%. Show me a company that has those type of margins. How do they do that? Well, obviously, market making. And that, you know, without going into too much detail, they're claiming that they showed $470 million in price improvement. And this is where I want to rip off the tape. They can show that because the legally how it's actually calculated is correct. But let me just go into how this price improvement works. $470 million. Again, 77.6% EBITDA margin. Somehow they gave the consumers $470 million in price improvement. There is something that trades on the exchange called the National Best Bid and Offer, the NBBO, that everything is compared to at the time that you execute a trade. You can finagle inside of those numbers because if you're not trading on the exchange, which a lot, most more than half, I think, trades now trade off exchange, you can kind of compare the two and kind of make up the number as you want. Odd lot trades that for everyone out there, anything less than 100 shares, so 25 shares of Amazon, 40 shares of Tesla, don't have the same criteria to be met, to be reported at all to the tape. Well, over half of trades are done on odd lot trades. So there's no protection for the retail investor on odd lot trades at all or how it's reported. So anyway, let me just finish by saying there's a reason the Virtu trades at five times earnings, six times earnings. Because people either believe that payment for order flow is going to go away, the volatility will subside, the retail investors will continue to lose money or maybe progress if things have been going on post GameStop and all these meme stocks, what's going to happen? But something to keep an eye on here because there are a lot of companies are reliant in the broker dealer community and market making community on payment for order flow. I don't think it's going to change today, but it's something to keep an eye on in the future. So Danny, great stuff there. And I think it is interesting that we still have these executives and, and we still have these regulators talking about this on the Hill because the stonks, the game stonks thing seems like it was like a year ago at this point, right? So it looks like there's some people who want to get to the bottom of some of this activity. I, I do think it's interesting to note, and, and full disclosure, I have a relationship with Fidelity. I do a weekly thing called In the Money for Them. Check it out on the web or my Twitter. This is a private company. They do not have the obligation to report quarterly numbers. There was a story that I read on CNBC.com that they gained 4.1 million accounts 
in the Q1. What's interesting to me about that, and I read it for the first time, just like all of you guys, is they are one of the only major brokerage firms that does not sell their order flow. And so they have a much lower profile than I think some of these other active trading platforms. But I do think it's interesting that there seems to be a lot of investors who don't want to be the product of these companies. Fascinating, Dan, Nathan. I love what you did there. And you really just, you tied a bow on it. And you know what I want to tie a bow on? You know, I don't really get the barons anymore like I used to Danny Moses, but cannabis cover story of... I mean, what's the deal? That's right in your wheelhouse, man. It's like serving up an 85-mile-an-hour fastball <laughs> right on the tee for you. Yeah, listen, it's nothing that we haven't talked about on this show. It's interesting that it's kind of getting into the mainstream. I think things like that help promote the idea of the Safe Banking Act down in Washington. I think a lot of politicians may read Barron's and aren't paying attention to anything else. So I think that's a positive. It's just a few things. The Canadian names are not the proxy for cannabis. They never have been. And it, when they were, it was the wrong way to play it. It's the U.S. multi-state operators, which goes through in detail in that article. If you haven't read, I would. And where these companies stand and how they're merging their businesses in with, with alcohol and CPG companies and how that's all going to emerge over the next couple of years. And just keep an eye on those U.S. names, the Crescos, the Green Thumbs of the world that we talk about here all the time. And it has the tailwinds. It needs to fix the tax code. They, they talked about that and fix these regulations. These companies can really grow and be a huge source of economic gains in the U.S. in every aspect. And kudos to the great Brady Cobb, who we had on you know, a month or so ago, obviously the Cresco News and what he's done. Brady is the shit. And yes, I use that word on this podcast. You know what other word I'm going to use as well? I'm going to use the word soothsayer. Does anybody here know what a soothsayer is? I mentioned Shakespeare earlier, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses, anybody please? Fortune me. teller? That's correct. A fortune teller, a teller of fortunes. And what's interesting, Danny, we had Bob Baffert on. He had a horse that was running in a Kentucky Derby. And I actually said to you, I don't know, Danny, this Medina spirit, I like, I like where he's running out of. I like what he's done. And oh, by the way, I met Manny Medina years ago in South Beach. And the guy's a genius. And the stars were lining up. And it was a 15 to 1 horse. I think it went off that day, 12 to 1. Danny Moses, who won the Kentucky Derby? Medina Spirit. Medina, I didn't hear you say one more time. I didn't hear that. Funky, cold Medina Spirit. Yes, Medina yes, Spirit. That is one. correct. Medina Spirit. And if you listen to the On the Tape podcast, you will have heard us say that Medina Spirits, and that not only did the horse win the Kentucky Derby, it wired to wired the thing. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the Preakness. Maybe you have some thoughts on that, Demo. I do have some thoughts. And let me just say, when I was cursing myself for taking the one horse, which I think just finished now, I think they just came across the finish line. I actually came in ninth and I had the one eight exacta and so did Dan Nathan, but that's okay. We kind of tried to put our picks together. I called Jack Wolf, who we had on with Bob Baffert, and he does not own this horse, but he does use Baffert to train. So I said, what happened in the days leading up to the Derby? Did you talk to Bob? He goes, yeah, I talked to Bob. He really didn't think this horse was actually going to win. I said, interesting. He goes, but you know who did? He said, who? He goes, Jill Baffert, Bob's wife, who is an amazing handicapper. And Jack hangs on every word that she says. She loved the horse. And the reason she loved the horse, she says there wasn't a ton of speed in the race. And if Johnny Velasquez, who won the Oaks, by the way, the day before with Todd mm -hmm. Pletcher, another starlight mm -hmm. connection, if he could get out in front, he could hold this lead and win this thing. So what did Jack do next? Jack goes talks, goes and has a conversation with Johnny Velasquez. Hey, Johnny, what do you plan to do with this horse? I'm going to get this thing out there and get in front and win this thing. I'm like, Jack, 
That would have been helpful information. Maybe if we had had you on our podcast on the Friday before the Derby instead of two weeks before. So that's a little inside baseball look into the coaching, managing thing that we talked about kind of in horse racing and in, in the business. But yes, we will have a Preakness pick and I will probably get at least be able to get Jack back on. And maybe since Bob Baffert might believe that we're the opposite of the Sports Illustrated Jinx, he'll come back on maybe even for a two-minute period and we could put something out for next week. It would week. be great to have him. Listen, I, I think he loved the horse. I don't think he loved the horse in the race. And he said that subsequently. Consequently, if you watch sort of the post-game show or the post-race show. Anyway, good for Bob Baffert and good for you, Danny Moses. I'm just breaking your chops a little bit here because you are the prognosticator, not I. Next, when we go off the tape, we're going to have somebody who transcends everything. I mean, this guy, if you wrote a book, you would say this is 100% fiction. But when we come back, our guest off the tape, Chris Bevilacqua. Now we're going off the tape with Chris Bevilacqua. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of SimpleBet, a B2B technology company focused on building the operating system for in-play sports betting and fan engagement for U.S. sports. He's also the co-founder of Bevilacqua Healthfont Ventures, a New York-based media advisory and investment firm in the sports and entertainment industries. Chris has backed several firms across sports, media, and tech, including StubHub, ActionX, ViaGogo, Lyft, Airbnb, SpaceX, Unscripted, and The Postgame. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you go Off the Tape. Chris Bevilacqua, welcome to Off the Tape segment of On the Tape. Great to have you here. Awesome to be with you guys. After Guy's intro, I think people are going to be looking up things about you now for good. So you got an Emmy Award, college wrestler champion, Penn State grad, 86, into the, what was it, Stillwater, Oklahoma is the Wrestling Hall of Fame entry in 2012, yep. I think. Great stuff. I went back and looked. You've done a lot already, and it feels like this is the culmination potentially of everything from your days at CAA, your days at, at getting these deals done for the Texas Rangers and TV rights and so forth. And now you're kind of bringing it all together. Maybe just talk about the merger here between in the media companies and gambling and how this is all kind of coming together and get into kind of the genesis of Simple Bet. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 35 years. I'm an old guy. I'm 35 years in the sports and, and media business, which is really where I've spent the vast majority of my career, right? And I first started as a runner and a PA at NBC and NBC Sports and production. I got into programming and then I went over to Nike and I spent five years at Nike and sports marketing and went through building a career and learning what I think is sort of every facet of the sports media and marketing industry. And then I decided to take all that and wanted to start my own business as an entrepreneur in the early 2000s and had this idea of starting a 24-hour college sports channel. You know, I, I actually tried to convince Phil Knight that Nike should do that. And he said, oh, we don't want to do that. And we sell shoes and clothes. And so I said, I'm going to start my own business and came up with an idea to start a 24-hour college sports channel, went around the country for a year of my own dime, trying to convince athletic directors and conference commissioners and presidents that you had to create an alternative to ESPN. And they're like, well, of course, why don't we, we got to do that? How do we do that, Chris? And I said, well, you got to give me a bunch of your rights that you're not using, and I'll go out and raise the money. And I found my partners, Steve Greenberg and Brian Beadall, who had just done classic sports. And I showed them this idea, and I got like three slides into my pitch deck, and they were like, this is the greatest idea I've ever heard. We started that. We raised $100 million of private equity money, started a network, 
Five years later, we sold it to CBS. So that was sort of my way into the media business, got into the financial markets and then raised money and learning how to deal with cable operators. And when I was done with all that in 2006, I said, I don't want to be in the operating business. I want to be in the media advisory investing business. And so that's kind of how I started getting involved with things like you mentioned CAA, StubHub was another thing I got involved early on. You know, I just sort of got access to a world that I hadn't had access to in the early, late 2000s. That led into creating this media advisory investing business. And then, you know, Scott Marshall, who was one of my partners at CSTV back in the early 2000s, he comes to me about three and a half years ago and he says, oh, I got this guy, Joey Levy. I'm in it, you know, like, you know, we're going to get into this sports gambling. I said, well, what do you want from me? I don't know anything about, I'm not a gambler. I don't know how to do that. He said, no, we need your access and your capital. And and I did know a little bit about data rights and engagement in what sports betting was going to ultimately become. I didn't know a lot about it, but I knew enough to know, like, there's something pretty cool here. So I put all that together, and that's kind of how we came up with Simple Bet three and a half years ago. Let me just say for those people out there, so I'm an advisor to Simple Bet, but when the first time I walked into their offices, it was equivalent to when I walked into long-term capital in 1996, and there were things on the board I had no idea what was happening. You had Harvard, MIT people, geniuses that I don't know how much they knew about sports, but they knew about how to do AI and how to build this product for you. So the level of intelligence in that room was very, very intimidating. And so to, to take that now, but just to take one step back here, if I could for a second, Chris, the fact through all your life and career, the people that must look up to you and respect you and want to follow you into the fire, if you want to call it that, Jim Muren's an investor in the company, Howard Schultz, David Blitzer, who owns the Sixers, the Giants owner, Jeff Mallett, right? It's a who's who. I could keep going down the list, but you have enough influential people in there almost to self-fulfill the success here. But I want to talk about the two deals you've kind of done in the last year, one with FanDuel and one with Intralots was the other one I, I think that you did. And for those people out there, this is a B2B product and not a B2C product. But for those people out there, Chris, can you just explain kind of how you're really just a platform inside of these B2C companies and talk about kind of the evolution of how you're going to begin to monetize this? That's right. We're, we're an enterprise software that has built and invested. We've, you know, we're three and a half years into this. We've got $50 million invested in building this technology platform, which at the end of the day, we built it around U.S. sports and the U.S. market and around the, this notion of micro betting, in-play micro betting, which our view was, that's why we had all those smart data scientists and machine learning engineers, because we thought that there was a huge opportunity in the U.S. market, particularly around U.S. sports like baseball, football, and basketball, which the cadence of those sports is very different from, say, a sport like soccer, the global sport of soccer, which, you know, when you talk about micro betting, that's like what's happening inside the two or three hours of those games. And so, Things like pitches and at-bats and plays and drives and shots and possessions and sports like tennis and golf that have a cadence that's much different than like a sport of soccer. So you're able to offer and enable as an enterprise software this platform that we can then make available to our customers like FanDuel and DraftKings and BetMGM that are really the consumer-facing businesses that allows for, like in every baseball game, there's 75 at-bats and 300 pitches. And you have multiple opportunities to bet on an at-bat or on a, on a pitch-level market that literally turns 
one single three-hour baseball game into several thousand mini betting opportunities throughout a game. So we've essentially built a platform that gamifies the game, right? It takes all these like little mini events inside of a game and the cadence of a, a game like baseball where you've got each at bat is it's 60 to 90 seconds. So you can do lots of different things inside of a 60 to 90 second at bat. And so we took our investment in technology and ultimately built this automation the level of automation that's required to offer an end user all those types of in-game betting opportunities. And we did it across the three main sports, baseball, football, and basketball in the U.S. market, which is about 90% of the betting handle in all of the United States is around those three sports. So that's kind of where we zoomed in. I'm going to let Danny drill down on that in a minute. But listen, your story is remarkable. And you know, one thing I've learned over the years, every time I meet a wrestler, these guys obviously men are just, they're all uber successful. I mean, I know Novogratz from years. I'm sure you've run into Novo over time. And my boys went to a place called Del Barton and their wrestling program is probably in the top 10 of the country. And I met so many of those kids that have gone on to do amazing things. First of all, how did Dan Gable lose out to you? That's my first question. How did Dan Gable, he, well, I wouldn't say he lost. I mean, Dan, you know, of course he's a legend in wrestling and Luckily, I never wrestled Dan, right? He was a little bit older than I was. <laughs> Certainly wrestled against a lot of his pupils. But I wouldn't say Dan I lost out to anything with me. He's obviously a great accomplished guy in and of itself. And by the way, Novo is an investor in SimpleBet. Of course he is. Uh, there you go. There's another one. I mean, listen, I, I culturally, and for better or for worse, I'll always be a wrestler. Wrestlers are hard-headed people, mm -hmm. right? And I tell the story, and it's too long to go into here, but... The greatest lesson of my life was learned on a wrestling mat, okay? And it actually came in defeat. And it was a very simple lesson that any athlete can experience through the course of a career. But what I learned and the lesson that I learned as a wrestler in the 1983 NCAA tournament was that you just never give up. And I could use that analogy. I use it at, you know, when I was at CSTV and we were competing against ESPN. And, you know, we were the little guy. And it was like the David versus Goliath story. And there was one, you know, and I tell this lesson to my kids all the time. There's one thing in life you can control. You can control whether you get out-competed or not. And if you just never get out-competed, it's really hard to get beat. And so what I've tried to take to the company and culturally to us, like we're like a a little guy that is maneuvering in a sea of giants. And just like we did with ESPN 20 years ago, it's sort of no different now. It's like we're, we're like navigating around the DraftKings and the FanDuel's of the world, the, the giants, and yet somehow, some way, we're not going to get out-competed by all the other guys that are around us. And so if you just sort of stay around long enough, I think that ultimately that's the culture and the type of company that we're trying to build. There's always going to be someone better looking than you, more athletic than you, smarter than you, but there never should be somebody that outworks you. I talk about that all the time and that's effectively your story, but it's learned on a wrestling mat. I mean, you can't hide on a wrestling mat. You know that and I know that. Listen, you can hide on a football field. To a certain extent, you can hide on a basketball court. You can clearly hide on a soccer pitch. But you can't hide on a wrestling mat. And that teaches you some amazing lessons. And I think lessons that you've taken into the business world. And oh, by the way, every time I meet one of these Penn State guys, they're all uber successful. John Schaefer, who I met, you probably have run into John Schaefer over the years. He was the last 
quarterback to win a national championship at Penn State. I mean, he talks about it all the time. There's something about Penn State that brings this culture as well. No, that's a good point. I mean, it's not only the sport. I have great memories of competing when I was at Penn State, but there is, I don't know, something in the water in Happy Valley. There's a a lot of successful people that, that come out of there. No question. So, Chris, you mentioned that the in-game opportunity, obviously Simple Bet, is built around that and the game within the game. You know, we've been talking on this podcast through the course of this year, and there's been some really interesting events um, in the stock market, in crypto, where we're just seeing all these new participants, this whole gamification of financial markets. It seems to be not just about betting on the direction of something. It's kind of a lifestyle. Are you seeing that as far as how you think about sports and you think about the progression of your business and legal sports gambling? How much of it is just another legal activity for people to do on their iPhone? Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on a very interesting point. I mean, there, like we used in the early days of, you know, it's one of the reasons why we named the company Simple Bet, because when the idea first came to me with Joey and Scott, I was like, what do you want from me? And they're like, I don't even know how to bet the Jets plus 280 and the Patriots minus 150. Like, how do you even do that? Like, what does it even mean? It's complicated, right? And so kind of like Robinhood, right? Robinhood gamified trading for the layman. They made no commission trading. And all of a sudden, they really simplified the experience, right, through a mobile application of being able to make picks on stocks. And so they made it more accessible. It's sort of the same thing in gambling or gaming, which is, you know, again, that's why we named the company SimpleBet. Like, how can we take what is a complicated experience and really simplify it so that it's appealing to the mass market? And that really is the opportunity that's in, you know, we're at the very, very early stages of right here in the U.S. market is we're three years into past but being repealed. And there's really been no product innovation in mobile sports gaming. And so that's the intersection that we're living at right now and trying to, you're going to really grow the size of the market. And this is what we say to our customers, our operator partners all the time. It's like, it's fine. You guys are great, DraftKings and FanDuel. You got a million and a half customers each. But if you really want a lot more customers, right, you've, you've got the, the daily fantasy player, you got the hardcore sports better. Like, you now have to bring the casual fan into and the casual user. And that's really the intersection that we're trying to live at is like create these micro market betting opportunities that are more accessible and easier for a casual fan to enhance their entertainment value of the game they're watching. And I know there's a part of you, you built an amazing business, but my sense is there's a part of you that's sort of bummed out by all this. Like I'm one of these guys that plants my ass in a chair and I'll watch a three-hour Yankee game and I don't need all the bullshit that goes around it. I don't need the music between innings, between pitches. And personally, I don't necessarily need to bet on what each pitch is going to be. With that said, I I totally get it. But is that where we're going to, where people need to have that moment-to-moment buzz to watch a game? Is that what sports is evolving into? Yeah. I mean, you and I are probably in sync on this. I'm old-fashioned. I'm a lean-back guy. I watch sports because I want to watch sports. I don't need to have two devices in my hands and I'm betting. Like This wasn't meant for me, personally. Now, I've got four young kids. I'm surprised none of them have walked in the office here in the last 10 minutes, but none of them, they don't watch TV the same way you and I watch TV. They grew up with devices in their hands. There's a sociological 
massive sociological experiment, if you will, going on in real time, like that we're living through. And we're long beyond, our generation is long beyond that. I mean, but this generation has grown up with devices in their hands. They're easily distracted. They watch things and consume things in very bite-sized increments. They're not going to sit down like you and I and, and watch a three and a half hour football game from start to finish. They're just not going to do that. And so what you're watching now just in the entire media ecosystem, right, is you're go we're going from what used to be a wholesale model where programmers buy rights and then they go and they resell them to Comcast and DirecTV and then you're the end user, you sit down and you, you watch that. We're now moving into a retail environment where you got all this content that is now going direct to consumer and they're watching it when they want to watch it, where they want to watch it, on what device they want to watch it, and they're doing it when they're doing two or three other things. And so you've got this massive transition going on through the entire ecosystem. And what the content companies and the intellectual property rights holders, like the leagues and the teams, they have to figure out, like, how do I put this in front of everyone? You and I will watch it on TV, but my son and my daughter, they're not watching TV. They're going to watch it on whatever device they're going to watch on. So you got to fish in both ponds. And so I think that's where is trying to figure out when and where that transition happens as the rights holders. But then you have what we do, the products that we offer, like, okay, well, it's not going to be for everyone. So some people are going to watch their three-hour game on a TV set and not want to be bothered with a device. And then there's others that want to do it and be you know, immersed in it. And so the gamification piece of it. Chris, let me back up to a point you made, which I think is key. I think it was the NBA. I know Adam Silver was very into monetizing the gambling aspect on his business. I feel like he was the big proponent of the big three. But more than that, I think to Guy's point, if I'm watching a Yankee game, and I don't like to watch Yankee games, and it's eight nothing, to most casual fans, the game's over. To the gambler, being able to gamble on the next pitch, I think the leagues obviously all realized that feeds into your other business that you've done in the past, TV revenue. An otherwise game that would be turned off is kept on. And whether it's being watched on a television or on an iPhone or however it's being watched, that's the real catch here. And I think as soon as the owners of all these big leagues realized that the value of the franchises could go up, they finally became accepting once they could get their hand in the pie. Is that accurate? And then other point I wanted to ask you is that you mentioned Radar and IMG, and you talk about the people that actually own the data that are licensing the data from these leagues themselves, which is really where the real value is. And you guys use that to run through the stats and build up this B2B platform. Yeah, well, your first point, yes. I mean, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. And you just saw the end result. It's actually good timing for your first question, which is the NFL just did six deals over 11 years and about $110 billion of revenue. So at the end of the day, the media companies that are paying them all this money for those rights, what do they sell? They sell time and attention and consumption. So if you've got a product, sports gambling, or you know any kind of a gaming product that incentivizes people to watch longer, that's a good thing. So they basically doubled all their media value, which by the way, dwarfs the amount of money they can generate out of sports gambling. It's not even close. So the leagues got onto that a while. Like we were able to show them on our little simple bet free to play product that we did last NFL season with FanDuel. We had it up for 17 weeks. The average user on FanDuel was making 80.1 bets on Sunday per user, 80 times their betting. 
they're on the app for 26 minutes on average. About 30% of them were on the app for an hour or more. About 12 to 13% were on for two hours or more. So you've got this amazingly sticky experience that's driving people to watch their content longer. I mean, like, of course they're all in favor of this. I think it's fascinating. And what's interesting is just to play devil's advocate, because I think it's brilliant. It's actually something I've talked about for a while. I mean, this lines up perfectly with the sport of baseball and the sport of football, given that they're natural breaks in between pitches and obviously in baseball, in between plays, obviously for football, it's a little more intricate or complicated with basketball and hockey, but that's for another time. My point is this, everybody now, addictive behavior, these are addictive platforms. You hear about it with Facebook all the time. How concerned are you that you're going to fall under that addictive platform mantra that you hear so much? If I want to be concerned about that, I'll take a $700 billion market cap like all those other companies, right? right? No, I get it. Believe me. You know, it's sort of hard if no one's done anything about that. I mean, there seems to be no, I think where you're going with there's any kind of regulatory momentum to change all that. But at the end of the day, whether it's cannabis or it's alcohol or people do this stuff, we're not trying to create gambling addicts, if that's what you're saying. I mean, it's a fun, entertaining way to increase your consumption or complement what your fandom is, whether it's you mentioned football and baseball. And yeah, the cadence of those games lends itself to this type of interactive experience. And then you have all these other interactive experiences like augmented reality or or virtual reality. So gaming's just one other piece of that. Yeah, I don't think Guy fully grasps. I mean, Guy, I've been gambling online. At first, I was doing it off the boards, not legal for years, and now I can do it legally. But what the funniest thing is, is that consumers actually believe they can have an edge in this. You have MIT and Harvard engineers creating lines, basically. So to think you can have an edge over those guys, you know, is trading the stock market blind, right? So it's really hard to get an edge. There are so many bets within bets. And the one that I've seen the most recently, which has to be the highest margin gambling product for the house, is these closeout bets. So what is that? I know that Chris knows what it is. He's a guy in Dan. So I got the Lakers minus four. They're up by 26 with four minutes left. I bet $100. I can factor it. I can sell that for $92. That $8 is like just money in the bank for the most part. But you know what? As a degenerate or whoever, you take the 92, I'll go find the next pitch on a baseball game on another TV. So to think that the consumers have an edge, and I agree with Chris, it's entertainment first. And the fact that you're the B2B guy and not the B2C guy, you're kind of the guy behind the guy anyway, to a degree. But this thing's just going to keep exploding. And you mentioned cannabis. We talk about a lot on the show. Give me two other industries other than sports gambling, and cannabis that are going to provide more jobs, more tax revenue, and support local communities. And and I I can't find them. So this thing's here to stay for sure. Last thing, Chris, if you could just talk about SymbolBet. I know you guys used to cap raise recently. It was out there in the public. You actually were on CNBC, I believe, talking about it. But talk about kind of where the company is in the evolution. I know you mentioned that you're piloting some stuff. You're actually active on some stuff. Maybe just a quick overview on where you guys stand right now. Yeah, I don't know if you got any listeners in Washington, D.C. Hopefully you do, because we're going live there tomorrow with our baseball and NBA products. So you'll be able to, on Intralot, which is our provider in D.C., be able to literally bet on pitches and at-bats on the Washington Nationals game tomorrow in D.C. So that's very, very exciting for us because that's our next live real money betting product. Are you going to throw out the first pitch? <laughs> Not yet. I okay. mean, everybody in the stadium, you know, I have another business, uh, media advisory business, and my client actually happens to be the Washington Nationals. So I work with the Lerner family on their media rights stuff, like 
which is a whole other matter, mass and all the related craziness down there. But so we have that going on. You mentioned earlier, we have this deal with FanDuel, which is a free-to-play game. We've got another small operator that we announced a deal with called BetHouse. They're going live. They're a new sports book going live in Iowa and Colorado in June, early July. So our products are starting to roll out now. We've got not announceable or for public consumption yet, but we have another big operator that we've just reached an agreement with that you'll see later this summer. We've got a telecom that we're doing something really cool with around later this summer and actually into NFL, which really involves zero latency streaming. Like you hear a lot about latency. What? How do I bet on it? If it's 10 seconds behind than what's going on in the stadium, that's all changing because of technology. So we're working on some really cool stuff there. We that last set of capital that we raised back in January got us. We've raised now fifty million dollars. Really excited about. We've got Aristocrat, which is a big global gaming casino-based company, Australia, that has also invested, and we're working you know, closely with them on a couple of really cool things. I think you'll start to hear more about you know in the coming months. So you know a lot a lot of stuff in the pipeline, and our main thing now is getting our products out and really evangelizing the entertaining aspect of micro betting across these three sports that we've built. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of Washington, I guess the federal legalization versus states' rights versus it's the same thing happening here. Cannabis is going through the same exact thing. What are your thoughts there? Are we going to see a federal bill legalizing sports gambling anytime soon? I don't think anytime soon. No, I think there's definitely quite a bit of momentum state by state. Yeah, you see Florida now is about ready to figure something out. Texas is starting to percolate. California is kind of the last big one. New York is already moving on mobile. So I think you're going to see the continued structure that we have state by state rollouts, at least for the next in a, next few years. And so we'll, because it seems to be working. Chris, this story is amazing. So my, I have two questions to you. Who plays you in the movie? Because somebody should make a freaking movie about you. Same way Brady Cobb's old man, going to make a movie about him. We had Brady on a month and a half or so ago. Who's playing Chris Bevilacqua in the movie? Give me an answer. Don't bullshit me. It's got to be either De Niro or Pacino. De Niro. A hundred percent's got to be De Niro. I was <laughs> thinking the same Pacino. thing. It's got to be De Niro. <laughs> That's so yeah. good. And the next question is, who do you admire? Because obviously people like you always have guys or gals you look up to growing up and somebody said, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. For you as a young man, who was that person? For me as a young man, I mean, obviously you got to start with your father. My father, who we'd have to get him a copy of this, this podcast, but he was a big wrestling guy. He was very involved in amateur wrestling. So for sure, my father, but the two guys that have really inspired me business-wise over my lifetime are Phil Knight and Howard Schultz. Two guys that in many respects were true grinders on the one hand, but also real entrepreneurs and long-term visionaries who could look around the corner and see the future. So if I was going to have some combination of those three guys, that's what it would be. Well, Chris, it's been a joy having you on on the tape with us. We went off the tape with you, but we'll absolutely have you back. Continued success with not only your businesses, but with your families. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks once again to Chris. If you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit follow so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod, and we'll see you next week. 